0: So, so wonderful. Turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 2. We're going to be carrying on our series. We've been in Ezra uh, for about 10 weeks or so, and then we've transitioned into Nehemiah. Nehemiah, I'm really enjoying just the, the practical nature of what we are getting our teeth into. This morning is going to be um, no different. So, just for those of you who joining us for the first time, let me quickly recap, and I ask those of you who are here every week and you here faithfully listening to the series. you know exactly where we are, hopefully, um, although it 's also helpful just to be reminded of the last few weeks so we know where we 're at, um, but also just to have grace. It's not just about us and our series and, oh my goodness, why does he have to recap everything again? We have some new folk with us, people who have just joined us. It's good to have you. We'd like to make you welcome. So the flow of the last, I'll just do the last three weeks or so, the flow that we've, that we've been going through in the book of Nehemiah is the first, the first week I spoke on a holy discontent And how God places inside the hearts of his men and his women, his servants, he places this discontent inside of their hearts. And we see it in Nehemiah where he's heard news before, he's heard about Jerusalem. It's over a hundred years since the walls were were broken down and were burned and the gates were burned. It's over a hundred years, so he's heard the same thing many, many times before. But something happens and he has this holy discontent. We called it the Popeye moment. You know the guy who eats spinach? That guy, I can't stand it no more. That's all I can stand. I can stand it no more, is Popeye's line. When someone touches his his olive and tries to take his olive away from him. And then in the week two, we spoke about well, I wanted to just stir faith in our hearts and we spoke about looking at Nehemiah, how God plans out our lives. We looked at other examples through scripture, how God plans out our lives. Do you know that? That God has plans and purposes for your life. We forget that. I love Francois reminding us, in your workplace, every day, God is calling us to certain things. And then God positions us, like we see how he positions Nehemiah and Ezra in the place of kings, places we should never be. God positions us. And then God provides for us always, not just financially, in every area of our life, God's provision. Lord, what about my family? What about my kids? What about this? What about this? God is enough. He will provide. These guys are an incredible testimony, taking two teenage children. When all the wisdom tells you, don't take your kids in high school. Don't take them into Indonesia of all places. Rebecca, has it been okay? Do you still love Jesus? I know your hair is pink. I spent good time with these guys. These guys are beautiful children of Jesus. And then in the third week, Ollie was speaking last week about the major way that God begins to prepare our hearts is that we are faithful in prayer. And there's two kind of ways that we pray that we see in the book of Nehemiah. The one is this whole chapter one where he's praying, uh, he's praying scripture. He's praying practically, God, you said you would do this. God, this is who you are. And we pray these, the scripture and we pray these practical prayers. And then he ends off that chapter appealing to God in a very practical way. And he says, Lord, I'm gonna go and speak to this king. Grant me mercy. As I go about my day. And then in chapter 2, we we're going to read just now, but Ollie referenced it last week. He called it rifle shot prayers. And the king says, what do you want? What do you want me to do? And he, it says he, he prayed to the God of heaven. Just right there, he just shoots up this prayer to God, leaning back. On the prayer, the big chunk of prayer. And I want to just press home the seriousness of this again. I want you to listen carefully. If we do not prayerfully build the kingdom of God, it will fall. What we build will not be long-term fruit. Do you believe that? Because we don't pray like we believe that. If we are not prayerful in our endeavors, God will work because he's gracious He will work despite you. He will work despite me, not alongside or because of partnering with us. And man, I for one am not keen for that. So I want to go back to Psalm 127 again and again and again devotionally. Unless the Lord builds the house, the laborers labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman watches in vain. And we go again and again in prayer to God and say, Lord, we want to build something that's going to last. And so we're going to pray again and again. Are you with me? So that's been our last three weeks. Are you really with me? Are you here? It's warm. It's not even cold, guys. You don't even have like the cold excuse. It's warm today. We have like the Berg wind. But with those three weeks in mind, I want to say this morning there's got to be more. There's got to be more than just the excitement that God shows us something and we have a vision of this holy discontent of something that's wrong. We want to have more. This is my problem with hyper charismatic, right? This is what I speak about sometimes. But the problem with just an experiential kind of gospel is that we fall down and we get back up and we fall down and we get back up and we keep seeking the experience and God wants to put feet to the experience. He wants to take those moments and springboard us into more of his purposes. Not just for us to go and have another soaking session for the next 10 years. He wants to put feet to what he's calling us to. James, the book of James says it like this. He was Jesus' brother in chapter 2. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? You could sum up this section of James with this phrase. True faith always produces godly works true faith always produces godly works or we've been looking in the book of Ephesians chapter 2 and I love it because you see the two of them exist right next to each other this is what it says for by grace you have been saved through faith do you work for your faith no By grace you have been saved through faith, and this not your own doing, just in case you didn't get it. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. And Paul makes it explicitly clear, and then he goes straight on in verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. If you don't know Jesus this morning and you're sitting here and you are not a Christ follower, I want you to note carefully the order of that text in Ephesians chapter 2. You do not work and earn some kind of audience with God. You do not get yourself to a place where you're good enough. Have you ever heard when you say to someone, I want to, I want to help you around God. I want to lead you toward God. And they say, well, I just need to get my life a bit more organized. What does Jesus say? I came for the sick The doctor comes for the sick, not for the well. So when someone says that, you say, well, you're perfectly positioned. Far away from God, you're perfectly positioned. This is exactly how God said he's coming. So no one is saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. And this is a great privilege. Now, Nehemiah, when we read in chapter 2, you're going to see two very distinct Good works, and they're very easy to see. There's two things that are that are easy to pull out of this text that he needs to accomplish. The first thing is he needs to get from Susa, which is the place where he is in the Persian kingdom, the Babylonian kingdom, he needs to get from there to Jerusalem. Remember this is where it all started when the guys came back and said, Jerusalem lies in waste and ruin, our people are in disgrace. And God breaks his heart and he knows that he has to get back to Jerusalem. That's the good work number one. The second good work, he knows that when he gets there, he needs to rebuild the walls. Mobilize people to rebuild the walls and the gates and everything goes with it. Now at, at this point when I'm, when I'm reading Nehemiah, my curiosity has peaked. I'm really interested when I, when I read about a Bible character who has good works planned, and I read Ephesians and it says, "God has good works planned for me." We turned last week or the week before we turned to one another and actually said that over each other. Do you know, God has good works prepared in advance for you to do?" And then I, I start thinking, "Well, God, what are those? What are those works? And some of them are, are general. Some of them, I can tell you, would be, would be identical. For most of us in the room, anybody who's married, here's here's some of the things that I believe that God has for me. I believe that my first priority is to my family. My family are more important than you. For me. Your family is more important than me. For you. That's one of our first priorities. I believe that God has called me to grow in loving my wife and to intentionally work together on our marriage. That's the general call of God toward maturity, right? I don't need something to write, write it in the sky. I don't need some prophet to prophesy over me. The Lord wants to take your marriage to greater heights. I know that. The Word of God makes that abundantly clear. I'm just so selfish. I struggle with it. Another priority in my life is that as a role as a father is to love and secure my children, to teach them obedience. If they can't obey me, how can they obey God? That's one of my primary roles, to teach my children obedience and to show them the true father. To keep saying, you know what, dad does this. Dad is, is helpful here, but he's unhelpful here. But there's a father who loves you more than me, who's better than me, who can, who can never ever sin. Another good work, and I'll share about this a little bit later in my, in my own life, But is to personally keep growing in my relationship with God. My devotion, sometimes we we think of holy discontent, and we think about Kayamandi, or we think about Indonesia, or we think about some far-flung place that maybe God's going to call us to one day. Sometimes some of the hardest ground to cover is the terrain of our own hearts. It's where God begins to stir holy discontent inside of us and says, Paul, that thing in your heart, I don't want it there anymore. I don't want that sin in your life. Now, what are yours? Maybe, like me, you get very curious when you read the book of Nehemiah, and you think, oh, those are nice and clear. History's great at that. We just get the kind of highlights, and it's so obvious. Oh, that's, of course you should have done that with your life. It's much harder when you're living it. So the way I'm going to speak about it this morning, the language I'm, I'm going to use, just because I find it helpful, it is a little bit uh, GLS, if you know Global Leadership Summits, but the language from, from here to there. So you here, whatever the issue might be, you here, and God is wanting to take you to there. And the good work that takes you from here to there, that's the good work. That's what he's wanting to reveal to us, all right? So let's think about it like this. I've been talking about marriage. My marriage is here. God says, I have more for you. I have more. I have a good work for you to do. And that good work is going to take your marriage to there. All right, you with me? Or you could put it into your life group. Your life group is here. God wants to take you there. You could put it into your business. God's put businessmen and businesswomen in our midst who are committed to his kingdom. And God's saying, man, your business is brilliant. It's here. But I want to take it there. There's even more. I want to shine my glory through your business. Maybe it's our knowledge of the word of God. We say, Lord, we, we're just drinking milk. We, we know you here. But God, we want, we want there. We want more of you. Are you with me? And then sometimes it's not just in our own individual sense, sometimes it's in a community sense as well. So if we talk about one hope, we're here, we're crying out, God, we want there, we want more. So a really obvious one is is just around leadership. We're saying, Father, would you grow leadership muscle in this congregation? We're here, but we need to be there. We need more. If we're going to be more impactful and more helpful in discipling, genuinely discipling people for the kingdom, we need more people. Look, like was talking about this one-on-one interaction. That's where we're growing, right? Another obvious one in our community sense is serve Stellenbosch. Isn't it exciting to see what God's doing? Isn't it so cool to see the young adults rising up this week and painting out the youth outreach? The guys a couple of weeks ago with Calling Academy—I think there's 60, 70 of you there—that are involved, getting stuck in. But doesn't it feel like it's just the beginning? Doesn't it feel like, we, like we're here and we're saying, God, there's so much more that you want for us? That's exciting. We, we're starting to talk to other churches and say, hey, what are, you, what are you doing for this town? Why don't we partner? Why don't you come? That's why we're specifically distancing ourselves from Serv's Deli. So it's not a one-hope thing. So that other churches can come alongside and can get stuck in such a simple model. We can all do it together. Wouldn't it be amazing if in five years' time we have 10 or 15 churches coming together and surrounding Calling Academy with 150, 200, 300 people and like making an incredible difference in that place? Wouldn't that be amazing from here to there? Or the, the Clutusville Mission coming up in the June holidays. I can encourage you, it's going to be wonderful to get in there. It's going to be wonderful. We're doing it like a mission trip. So you can. we're going to stay in a house together. We're going to eat together, the whole thing. You're going to sleep there. If you really want to go home, we'll have to have a conversation about that. But it would be wonderful to all be just together, and then we're going to serve the kids in Plutusville for that week. And if you can't give five days, that's okay. We're going to make some opportunities through the week that you can come and give an afternoon and just spend the afternoon with the team. So we're on the same page so far. So then the obvious question is how? How? Paul, you're saying you want to move, God wants to move us from from here to there, and I don't just want to rah-rah and just go out and try harder. Just go out and, and do more. God has prepared good works in advance for us to do, and he's not hiding them and shrouding them in mystery. He wants us to know what they are so that we can do them. Now, I'm going to get into Nehemiah 2. You can breathe a sigh of relief. I'm not just going to preach from my head. And the way I want to do it is that usually I would go through the text and then I would tell you what, what I'm seeing or pulling out of the text. I want to do it the other way around today, just for clarity. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to look for and then I'm going to read the text so that you can follow it with me. So I believe that Nehemiah, as he, we, this is the question we're asking, how do we get from here to there in every good deed? And the answer is we do this by asking some really helpful questions. Here are the five questions, five words. If you're taking notes, what, why, how, who, and when? And if you've, you're familiar with this, from, there's lots of different places where this gets used. So the first one is this. What is there God has for me? What is it that God wants me to do? The second one is, why can't I stay here? What's wrong with right here? What's wrong with my marriage? Why must I move? I'm comfortable. Why do you want us to go and unite with other churches? Don't you know I came from that church because I don't like it anyway? Can't we just stay one hope? Why must we move? It's a good question. We must ask it. How? How are we going to get there? How or I, are or we going to get from here to there? Who? Who is with me? Who's with us? And then when are we going to do this thing? And these are critical questions. And I'm going to show you as we read through the passages in Nehemiah, how he operates with these five questions. So let's go. The first good deed. I said to you is to move from Susa to Jerusalem. This is his first good deed. This is the first thing he has to do. Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was before him, I took up the wine and gave it to the king. Now I had not been sad in his presence. And the king said to me, why is your face sad, seeing you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. Then I was very much afraid. Mentioned that the last time, two weeks ago when I was preaching. It's, it's, it's terrifying sometimes to step into the more that God is calling us to. As Francho was sharing again this morning. Then I was very much afraid. I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should not my face be sad when the city, the place of my father's graves, lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? Then the king said to me, what are you requesting? So I prayed to the God of heaven. That's the rifle shot prayer I was talking about that Ollie referenced last week. And I said to the king, if it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in your sight, that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's graves, that I may rebuild it. So in this little section, in these first five verses, we see very clearly a why and a what question, right? So the king says, why is your face sad? What's wrong? What's wrong with where you are right now? And he says, why should my face not be sad? How can, I, how can I just carry on living here when I know that the city I come from lies in ruins? The graves of my father's lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire. So Nehemiah says, I can't stay here. Remember, he's in a, in a plush king's palace with one of the best jobs. He's a wine taster. There's no push factors. There's no factor to push him out. Everything is good for Nehemiah right where he is in the king's palace. The guys come from Jerusalem and they say the city is in disgrace. It's hardly a travel brochure, is it? The city's in disgrace. The walls are down. It's a shambles. He's like, yeah, I want to go there. I want to go there. You've got to have a pretty compelling why. Why? In your heart to want to do that. And Nehemiah says, I can't, I can't have a happy face anymore. Even my face is betraying me. My face is sad so that the king can see it. And then the king asks him, well, what are you requesting? What do you want to do? And he says to the king, if it pleases you, if I found favor in your sight, send me to Judah. I need to go to Jerusalem. That's the what. What is there that God has for Nehemiah to do? It's to get to Jerusalem where he can rebuild the wall. Let's keep reading verse 6. And the king said to me, the queen sitting beside him, How long will you be gone? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me when I had given him a time. And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, Let letters be given me to the governors of the province beyond the river, That they may let me pass through until I come to Judah. And a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he may give me timber to make beams for the gates of the fortress of the temple and for the wall of the city and for the house that I shall occupy. And so we see clearly a when. The king asks him, How long will you be gone? When will you come back? And it says, Nehemiah gave him a time. When? When is this thing going to happen, Nehemiah? When will, you, when will you do it? On a specific day, in a calendar, it happens. We don't have the record of this. Later on, we have a record of him with a date. But right now, we don't have it. But there's a when, and he tells the king. And then there's the how question. How, Nehemiah? How are you going to get from here to there. And he comes with this clearly laid out strategy. He says to the king, king, I need you to give me letters. I need the letters to say this. We need to have safe passage to there. I need the king's forests to be open to me so that I can take timber to build my house. And when I get there, I'm gonna build the wall. We're gonna build the gates and I'm gonna build myself a house. He's got a clear how in mind. And then look at the last little section of, of this text. And the king granted me what I asked for the good hand of my God was upon me. That's the who. Who is with Nehemiah? Well, most obviously, God. In fact, he says that the good hand of God, or the, the other, another version says the gracious hand of my God. Remember when we're talking about provision. Who's with you? Who's with you when you step out on this crazy endeavor? God. But then not just God. He also has letters from the king. The king is with him. The authority of the king has been given to Nehemiah. In fact, he has the army. He has the cavalry going with him. So that's the, that's the first good work of Nehemiah. That's getting him from Susa to Jerusalem. Let's look at the second one. What's the second good work? The second good work is to rebuild the wall to mobilize the people, to rebuild the wall. So let's skip down to verse 11. The the verses in between that, they faced some opposition from Tobiah and these other guys. We won't focus on that today. We're going to focus on that in two or three weeks' time. Verse 11, so I went to Jerusalem and was there three days. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me, and I told no one what my God had put into my heart to do for Jerusalem. There was no animal with me but the one on which I rode. got no idea why that's there. I went out by night by the Valley Gate to the Dragon Spring and the Dung Gate. Longaforia road is not sounding so bad anymore, eh? This is like lived on Dung Gate. And I inspected the walls of Jerusalem that were broken down and its gates that had been destroyed by fire. Then I went on to the Fountain Gate and to the King's Pool, but there was no room for the animal that was under me to pass. Then I went up into the city, up in up in the night by the Valley and inspected the wall and I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. This time, let's change up the order a little bit. This is for me the how. He goes and he begins to inspect the walls. What, what does this project look like? What do, what are, what's actually going to be needed here? How serious a building operation is this going to be? And Nehemiah goes out and he begins to gather all his information as he goes around this wall. And then carry on in verse 16, the officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing. And I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, and the rest who were to do the work. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we are in. Do you see the why? Why can't we just stay here? We've been here for a hundred and something years, Nehemiah. We've lived with these broken down walls for ages, Nehemiah. Why can't we just stay here? He says to the people, you see the trouble we are in, how Jerusalem lies in ruins with its gates burned. Come, let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer suffer derision or shame. Isn't it the case that when you've had a crack in your wall, at first it's so glaring. Every time you walk into your house, you just see this crack. You can't even see your house anymore. You just see the crack in the wall. But after a year, or two years, or three years, you don't see the crack anymore. It just becomes a part of your normal life. And so God raises up Nehemiah because the people back in Jerusalem have grown so accustomed to their disgrace. They've grown so accustomed to the walls being broken down and being raided again and again by these marauding bands that would come through. So Nehemiah goes and he begins to stir this why question in their heart. Why can't we stay here? Because here is trouble. Here is Jerusalem in ruins. Here is the gates burned. Here we are God's people and yet our city has no reflection of this great God. We're a stock of the nations. That's why we can't stay here. And then the what question. Well, what must we do? He says, come, let us rebuild the walls. Come, let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, and that's the what, just in case you missed it. And then verse eighteen, and I told them of the hand of my God that it had been upon me for good, and also of the words that the king had spoken to me, and they said, "Let us rise up and build there's the who he begins to unpack for them. The king is with us, but more than that God is with us, the gracious hand of God. And he begins to tell them testimonies of how he got to Jerusalem and what God has done. And then they reply, let us rise up and build. And we see that the who is also the people, the people that are around Jerusalem. And the last question is the when. And I think it's found in that same little verse, let us rise up and build. Well, now, now let's start. When did they do it? Well, we don't know the exact date, but if we go and read in Nehemiah chapter 7, we know that it says they took 52 days. So there was an actual date in a diary where this thing started. And I want you to notice the term just after that, they strengthened, so they strengthened their hands for the good work. I don't know about you, when you read the book of Nehemiah, who do you want to be? Nehemiah, right? We all want to be Nehemiah, and yet Nehemiah needs about a thousand people at least, it's estimated, to begin to build that wall. If I had more time this morning, I wanted to spend some time talking about the way that we exalt leadership and we push down followership. And I think we need to readdress this balance in the church where, yes, God absolutely calls people to lead. And would the leaders lead? There's a verse in Judges that says, the leaders lead and the people follow. Praise the Lord. I love that. The leaders lead, the people follow. Praise the Lord. It's an equilibrium. But guys, we can't overemphasize the leader in the story the whole time. Let's all be Nehemiah's. Not a single wall would have been built if we were all Nehemiah's. I love this little verse. So they strengthened their hands for the good work. Let us rise up and build. Good works prepared, yes, for Nehemiah. And good works prepared for every single person that God put their hand to this task of rebuilding the wall. Isn't it so wonderfully practical, the word of God? Isn't it so wonderfully applicable into our lives? I just, I love The Bible. I love reading this and thinking, God, this this applies in my life. This applies in what I do every day. And so just like Nehemiah and the Jews were called to good work, the application is obvious. So are we, right? So are you. We're called. And we write back to Ephesians chapter 2. It's not our salvation by works, but we have been called for good works from here to there. So God is saying, I don't want to leave it like this. I don't want Jerusalem like this. I don't want your life like this. I don't want your career like this. I want to take it from here to there. I want to stir a holy discontent in your heart. So let's pull it all together. What do we find in Nehemiah 2? We find that God wants to take us from here to there by good works, that he prepares in advance for us to do, not forgetting that he empowers us by the Spirit. We're not, as Paul says, saved and then suddenly go into our works to sustain it. All of it is an act of God. But the what is this? The what is vision, right? What is there that God has for me? That's vision. What is it that God is throwing up in front of your eyes this morning and saying, I'm not, there's something inside of you, there's something in your community, there's something in your workplace. And I want you to have a holy discontent. I'm birthing a holy discontent in you. Maybe you've lived with this sin for 10 years and it feels like an old friend. But God this morning is stirring in your heart and he's saying it's enough. And he stirs this holy discontent. That's a vision of the future. Where he's saying this is what it could look like. Why can't we stay here? That's motivation. Why is it not okay to just stay here? What's wrong with here? I like here. I'm comfortable. My wife's got used to here. Why can't I just stay here? How will I get here? How will I get there? That's planning. And this one is critical. How? It's so critical. Because you know what so often happens? God begins to birth something in our hearts. We get so excited that this thing is, that this God has showed us this holy discontent. We get so motivated about it. And then we think that the the objective is to phone the church office. That's the how. How's God gonna do this great thing in Stellenbosch? I know, let's phone Paul. Let's ask them to do something about the crisis that we're seeing. Have you ever considered that maybe God is birthing it in your heart because he wants you to do something? Thank you, whoever that is. So, my Siggy over there. Woo! See, if we don't move to this third phase, do you know what so often happens is we get critical hearts. Because God shows us a vision of what he wants South Africa to look like, what he wants our church to look like, what he wants Stellenbosch to look like, what he wants our own lives to look like. He shows us this vision with the what. And he tells us, why we can't stay here. It's not okay to stay where you are. It's not okay for South Africa to look like this in another 20 years' time. But then if we don't transition to God, use me, we start to get critical. What's wrong with my church? Don't they see it? Can't they understand? And we start to throw fire at everybody else because we haven't transitioned in our hearts to saying, God, what do you want me to do? The how. How are we going to do this, God? And let me tell you, God is in the business of using ordinary, sinful people. You can turn to the person next to you and say, just like you. (laughs) And then say, just like me. Who is with me? That's the people. And then when will I do it? That's the calendar. Let's finish off with a practical example. I want to speak, I I could have gone anywhere with this, right? I mean, there's so many different things we could have talked about. I want to focus in this morning on just a, a personal holy discontent. So in, in our own lives, let's talk about something that could be in our own lives where God comes and highlights something in your heart. And you, like Popeye, say, that's all I can stand. I can't stand it no more. I'm tired of this thing, God. I've, I've seen that rock and that tree. I've been around this mountain so many times. I've seen it hundreds of times. Maybe it's like we are speaking about your marriage, or maybe you're not married and it's just broken relationships. Guys, there's only so many broken relationships you can have before you start to realize that you're the common denominator. Right? It's a true story. But God wants to come. Maybe He's stirring in our hearts a holy discontent and saying, Everywhere you go, you leave broken relationships. I need to change something, and it's not about them. It's about you. Maybe it's your devotional life. Do you know what shocked me with this? Just a personal little vulnerable story. So I was thinking in week one and week two, I'm preaching about holy discontent and Popeye, and I'm sitting in my quiet time last week, the week before Ollie preached, and I hadn't even thought about personal application into my own life. And I just felt the Lord speaking to me and saying, Paul, I'm not satisfied with where you are devotionally. Is that okay? Because you don't get that on your YouTube preacher, right? Right? You don't know that he's struggling devotionally. But is it okay for me as a pastor to go through seasons where I've got to fight my alarm clock to get up in the morning and I don't feel like being with Jesus? Can we speak about these things? And maybe God's stirring some of the the holy discontent in our own hearts where we've realized, Lord, I'm not where I should be. I'm not where I should be, God. I'm not, I'm not praying like I used to. I, I don't feel you. I want, to, I want to be before you regularly. And I'm not talking about faithfully being before God. And God, sometimes, sometimes we feel close to God. Sometimes we feel far. That's fine. Those are different seasons that God takes us through. But I'm talking about the habit of devotion, of placing ourselves. Maybe it's something specific that God is calling you to. And the one I'm going to focus on this morning is maybe it's an area of ongoing sin. So I'm going to use the example of gossip, all right? So maybe God comes this morning and highlights something in your heart. Maybe God doesn't even need to come into the building to highlight it in your heart. You already know. The minute I say an onsetting sin or an ongoing sin in your life, it's front and center. Right now, it's like, that's the one. I know the one. I know exactly what it is. Boom, boom, boom. That's it. That's the one we're going to talk about. I'll just use gossip as a code word. In your mind, you put the sin that you know you're struggling with, All right. How do we go from here to there? So we're going to just do these five steps very quickly. The what. What is it that God has for me? Well, I can tell you the vision that God has for your life is not a vision where you're living in perpetual sin. That is not the vision that God has for your life. And so the way I'm trying to make this practical, the way that we ask this question is we begin to pray and ask God, Lord, show me a vision of my future without this thing crippling me at every step of my life. Walk with you. Show me a vision of my future, Lord. This gossip is is breaking my relationships. It's breaking things down. I hate it, Lord. Would you show me a place in the future where, where I don't have this over me all the time? Why can't I stay here? This is the motivation question. Why? Why can't you stay there? So if we're talking about gossip or whatever's in your mind, there's many practical things that God in his grace brings to the fore. It might be someone that you really hurt comes to you and says, you know, I heard that you said this and this and this about me when you were gossiping. They won't probably say that, but I heard this and this and this was said about me, and I want you to know that really, really hurt, and I don't know whether this friendship can carry on. Maybe that was a moment that God brought into your life that jarred you to realizing this is a big problem. Maybe, as is happening in our lives with children, as you begin to see the sins that you carry out working in the lives of your children. And you're like, oh God, no, (laughs) no, God, not them, not them, Lord. I see my little boy with with impatience rising up in him, one of them. I've got lots, so you don't know who I'm talking about. And I know, I mean, I've shared that from the pulpit before. That's something I've struggled with my whole life. And I'm like, no, God, no. And it's jarring for me. It wakes me up. Or maybe someone gossips about you. That's the best way to wake us up. And How can they? Oh, yeah. Oh yeah, i am also got that problem. And then we want to go to planning or, or how. That's the what, that's the why. Then we ask the question, how? How, how can I get there? Maybe we, we put a practical plan in place where we go before God and we say, Lord, this is a real problem. You've shown it to me. I know you've shown it to me because you want to change it. God, I don't know how, but I'm going to ask you to put people that I can talk to and I want to start figuring it out. And so as an example, you start reading the book of James, which speaks about the danger of the tongue. You start reading some of the Proverbs. So you start immersing yourself in reading and meditation and specific prayer. Maybe for a season you're praying very narrowly. You're praying very specifically about this thing in your life. Maybe you put some practical reminders. One of the ones that I've seen that's really helpful is to just take a verse or don't gossip and stick it on your mirror. So every time you brush your teeth, there it is. One of the young guys I was talking to recently, what he does is he puts it as as the background on his phone. Isn't that a great idea? So every time you open your phone, and then you go and look how many times you pick up your phone in a day, and it's like 20 or something. Every time you open your phone, there it is. The reminder. Maybe the how is deciding accountability. I'm going to share this with some people. Accountability gets a bad rap. It's It's like the you shouldn't be. It's not just the you shouldn't be. It's deeply encouraging to walk in accountability with people. It's deeply encouraging. I have some guys who walk in, Ollie and, and Phil, and other guys in the community who walk in community with me and who are, I'm accountable to. And they can ask me big questions about stuff going on in my life and about what the state of my heart is. That's a, a game changer for me. So maybe that's part of the decision. One thing that's been massively helpful for me in my own life is beginning to see some of the rhythms and when I'm most tempted. When am I most in trouble? When, so if, if we're talking about gossip as an example, maybe there's a group of people that when you get together with that specific group, you notice that's when you gossip the most. For me, that's my family. My God is the most down when I'm with my brothers and my sisters and my mom and my dad and man, we can hoy opinions like you have no idea. We've got the world sorted out. Everyone else is wrong. The sins. we've got it. Right? Because my God is down. And so... It's a really, really practical thing. But what I've had to do is literally before it's a Christmas time and we're going to go and spend two weeks with our family, is Kate will know this. I'll begin to pray. And I'll begin to talk to Kate and say, Lord, I know this thing is coming. It's happened to me 20, 30 times before. I know it's coming. And I know I'm weak. And so I begin to prepare myself mentally. I'm saying, God, I want you to prepare my heart. I want you to, in that moment, I ask you to remind me that this is not what I want. This is not the there. This is the here. And so we put some of these practical things into our lives. Who's with me? Well, that goes very much in step here in this example with the how. Scripture teaches us that as we confess sins one to another. It's powerful. We confess sins one to another. As you bring things, especially shameful things, especially addictions. I've seen the power of bringing addictions into the light. Suddenly you've got someone who knows. Man, it's a relief. If you haven't done that, can I encourage you? Can I encourage you? Find someone you can trust, someone who's going to be confidential with that information, and share with them. Hey, this is what's going on in my heart. It's an incredible start to a journey. Maybe it's In accountability, again, going to someone in that group. So let's say you've got this gossip issue and you've got this certain group that you've identified. Going to someone within that group and saying, hey, have you noticed I've got a problem with gossip? The next time I do that, won't you just kick me? Just, I want to give you the freedom in my life to come and tell me. Because often these things are blind spots because they're blind spots, right? You can't see a blind spot because it's blind. Kate and I have these little words. That we've developed for different things, especially with children, we don't want. I don't want Kate like you know we're having a a conversation. We're sitting around the supper table and and we're doing. Let's say we're being unnecessarily harsh as an example. And um, I don't want to then have Kate go, you know, you being harsh. I'm like, no, I'm not, because you know normally in the moment you're defensive and you have this big fight. So we've just developed like a really simple accountability thing where she'll say something. We'll have like a word. So we're talking about a specific issue, being harsh. She'll say something like teddy bears. I'm serious. That's one of our words. It's a stupid little word, but no one knows what you're talking about. But in that moment, I feel convicted. In that moment, as Kate says to me, Hey, teddy bears, just remember teddy bears. I'll just, I'll be reminded of the conversation we've had that I don't want to live there, that I want to go there. I don't want to live here. I want to go there. And I just, I just say thank you, Jesus. And because it hasn't been that abrasive conversation, Hey, you doing that thing again. It's so much more palatable. I know I'm so human, right? When someone says it to you and you're like, this is just the truth of some of the, the practical things that we've figured out. And then when will you start this calendar? Hopefully with gossip immediately. Immediately with these sins in, in our lives. Can okay, I'm really going to close. And I'm going to close by talking about Jesus. About the good news. See, because Nehemiah project, the project that Nehemiah is busy on as we're talking through Nehemiah reminds me of another project. It reminds me of Project Redemption. It's a beautiful, beautiful project, and here, how it goes. There's, there's a there, and there's a here, and there's a vision of there, and God tells us that he has this vision of rescued people. He has a vision of people who stand before him, and every single tongue and tribe and knee will get before him and will cry out, "You work. you are God. That's his vision. His vision is a renewed world, not this broken, falling piece of, I don't know what the right word is, <laughs> was, I'm looking for dilapidated, that's the word I'm looking for, world that we're living in. He has a brand new, renewed world. That's the there. But here's the problem, is that right now, we live here. The walls are crumbling down. The gates are burned. That's where we live. Jesus looks out over the crowd and he says, "They're like sheep without a shepherd. Like sheep without a shepherd. And then the scripture begins to tell us of God's plan to take us from here to there. He has a plan. He's got the what. He's got the why. He's got the plan. Scripture says, before the creation of the world, God planned our redemption. And it involves his son coming, just like Nehemiah, from a great place, from the palace, coming to this place of disgrace and despair. Philippians says, and beautifully in the Messiah's poem, God... Jesus, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but humbled himself, made himself a servant, coming down in the likeness of man. That's incredible. This is God's plan. Then God has his people. These words in Nehemiah 2, let us, let us start rebuilding, reminds me right in the beginning, let us create man, let us rescue man. And God has his people. It's God the Father. It's God the Son. It's God the Spirit. Even their demonstrating team. Then there's the calendar. Galatians 4 says, at the fullness of time. At the fullness of time, God sent his son to be born of a woman. And so God had in his calendar a day that Jesus would be born. In his calendar a day. Oh, he doesn't need a calendar. He's God. But you know what I mean. Over 2,000 years ago, on a specific day, the Son of God was squeezed into human form and born in a manger. Some 30 years later, some one minute later, that happened. It's the wind, more spirit. (laughs) Some 30 years later, he began his ministry. And the dove descends on him, the Holy Spirit. And John the Baptist cries out, behold the Lamb of God. Behold the Lamb of God. Three years after that, Jesus pours out his blood, having come down from the palace of heaven to the brokenness of our lives. But then he rose, defeating death and resurrection power. And ever since that day, he's been sending out his people with hundreds of millions of good works prepared in advance for us to do. Today, he has good works prepared for us to do. Maybe you're here today, and this is the first time you're hearing this message, or maybe it's the 500th time. Maybe you're tired of this message, but you don't follow this God. Hebrews 3 says, if you want to know Maybe he's stirring your heart, and you're saying, "Well, when should I come when when am I am I right enough? Have I done enough works? Am I okay? Hebrews chapter three says, "Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart That's the date in your calendar Today two Corinthians six says "Today is the day of your salvation. let's pray together, Father. I want to thank you for your word, even though I feel like I've taken some liberties with it this morning. I just want to Look at the example of Nehemiah and the way that he so thoughtfully goes about fulfilling the things that he feels you burning into his heart. God, I ask that you'd come and encourage us in our own lives, in our reading of this text as we see how you're with him, how you powerfully provide. You're the one who initiates the holy discontent. You're the one who guides him. You're the one who provides for him. God, you do everything. We just the lucky recipients of your grace. We just your blessed people who get to say yes when you call us for your purposes, Lord. Lord, I truly believe as we in this book of Nehemiah that you're beginning to stir deeply hearts that's sitting here this morning, hearts in this congregation. Lord, would we not ignore that? Would we not ignore that, Lord? And go on with our busy schedules and our busy lives, rushing from here to there, validating our own egos with how busy we are, how important we are, how everyone needs us so much. Father, I ask you that we would come silently before you. Asking that you would stir these things into flames in our hearts. Until we can't stand it anymore, we must do something. Lord, there's hundreds of ways this applies. So I'm so grateful that you know us intimately. You know each and every person what we need this morning, what we need to hear, what you want to do, where you purpose for us to be that day when our strength is failing, We're going to worship you forever and ever, and we're right close to that curtain. Thank you, Father, that you have an actual plan in mind for what my life and the lives of those sitting here and those we're missing today. You have an actual plan for what our lives should have been. We ask your grace to live in that, Jesus.